Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our weekly feature, Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. As always, we open with our friend, race engineer supreme, Jeff Brown from the Core Autosport program. We're talking about dampers. We're talking about shocks, man. Something that has been one of Jeff's most defining skills. Really something that put him on the map back in the 1980s. And so with more and more racing fans, budding race engineers, drivers, mechanics, you name it, saying, hey, we'd like to know a little bit more. What are they? What do they do from the most basic end to what are the different styles and types of dampers? So we get into the very basics of damping, what they are, what they do, where they come from, why we use them, and explore a variety of things. Try not to get too crazy in-depth knowing that we will very likely do a part two, three, and who knows, however many more, all based on your feedback. That's one of the great things with the show each week. Jeff and I usually pick one of your topics. So as you send in ideas, as you have questions coming off of a topic that we cover, tend to roll those into upcoming episodes. So hopefully you enjoy this. Again, try not to get too crazy in depth, knowing that for some of you dampers or you're learning the basics, but we can definitely go more in depth in future episodes. We then close with young Alex Brundle, who spoke with my weekend sports cars co-host, Graham Goodwin, young Mr. Brundle here, giving us thoughts on the recent ELMS opener at Paul Ricard, his late entry for Le Mans with United Autosports team, and also an Aston Martin factory GT4 seat. He has secured for the 24 hours of Nürburgring. So two guests this week, roughly an hour's worth of content and we're going to be jumping right into recording the week in sports cars here as soon as this goes up so i'm off to indianapolis tuesday morning a uh, big open the single pre-race open test at the indianapolis motor speedway and then back so we're trying to get at least a couple of podcasts done before i get on a big old airplane all right let's get going with jeff and then close with alex all brought to you by cooper tires and the justice brothers Jeff Brown, we are back once again with Inside the Sports Car Paddock. And today, courtesy of you, Jeff, the damper guy, you're going to take us inside the dampers inside the sports car paddock. Had a question, more than a few questions, but had a uh, question actually that came in from my weekend IndyCar show just a couple days ago with someone saying, hey, could you please tell me, you know, it's just a shock, right? All this stuff about... These are the super magic sauce, and this is what makes this vendor better than the other. I mean, come on. These are just shock absorbers, right? Well, there is a little something to that, but there's also a pretty big difference between what they are, how they do, what they do. I figure who better than Jeff Brown, who uh, really made his name in the sport as a guy understanding this stuff. So we're going to try and do uh, shocks, dampers. It's the same term. So I apologize if I, we bounce back and forth between that, but we're going to do a little bit of damper 101. I don't think Jeff, we're going to get the entire, uh, Jeff Brown curriculum in, uh, one recording here. (laughs) So, but where should we go? Should we start off with the basic premise of damper history, where they came from, why we have them, et cetera? Sure. It's, it's a, it's a great subject. Um, it, it could likely be 10 episodes, but we'll try to we'll make it simple. And if people want more, we can get into more depth in, in the future, but let's start with uh, why we need 
why we need a shock or why we need a damper. And it's, it's basically a, a device that stops the movement or the oscillation of the chassis and the wheel, the suspension, um, when it hits a bump or goes in a hole or in a dip. So I'm sure everybody's seen, gone down the road and seen some guy on the freeway with one of his front wheels just bouncing like crazy up and down. And that's because the damper is blown out. The shock is blown out. If, if you just had a spring and you hit a bump, it would compress, return, compress, return, and it would just kind of, you'd be bouncing around like a beach ball. So what the damper does is simply damp out those oscillations. It reduces the the oscillation from when you hit a bump, the, the spring oscillation. So how does it do it? Um, the, the most basic rudimentary way of thinking what's inside of there is there's a shaft that has a piston that goes inside the body of the shock, the, the basic body of the shock. Inside of that shock, full with oil in the piston are some holes and so when the when the shaft of the shock goes in when you hit a bump it's trying to press this piston through this hydraulic fluid and the oil from one side is going through the holes in the piston to the other side and the force that's created to try to squish that oil through these holes is what it creates the force to damp out the spring oscillations. So that's the very basics of, of how a damper works and why we need them. And there's uh, tens of different variations on how you can create that force using the hydraulic fluid. Most of them using, are using hydraulic fluid inside nowadays, um, and some of them are even um, able to change the force with some electrical influences, but, you know, we'll keep it simple for now. So I would just say, yeah, and I would just say in, in a very basic premise, if you've ever seen some uh, a cooking show with someone making, I don't know, mashed potatoes or something like that, and they have that kind of bludgeoning device but has some little openings in it to help kind of extrude what they're they're trying to turn from a liquid into a somewhat of a solid it's kind of the same premise you have the shock body you have the piston which is being pushed through an orifice uh, that seals all the the damper the hydraulic fluid inside of it but you have a piston i'm sorry you have well you do have a a, a, a damper shaft at the top of it, you have the piston, and in that piston, there are a variety of holes, bleed holes, a variety of shims. There's all kinds of stuff Jeff will get into, but the whole yep. process here is effectively trying to uh, push that shaft with a piston uh, mounted to the top of it with a variety of holes, big, small, you name it, through that oil, and it, that process of having to force that uh, piston through the oil uh, based on how it is built by someone like Jeff or others, you can either speed up or slow down that movement, therefore slow down 
the oscillations and and dampen out the undesirable handling characteristics. So it, it's exactly. you're kind of mashing potatoes here. Yeah, when you said cookie show, the first thing that uh, popped into my mind is if anybody's ever made coffee in a French press mm. or seen a French press, that's exactly what it is. You're pressing that you're you're pressing down, and the fluids coming up through the through the holes in the piston, and there's a resistance to that. And what we can do is vary the size of those holes that we're forcing the fluid through. And and really, almost all modern racing dampers work on that principle. We're either we're pushing fluid through a hole. Sometimes the holes are shaped different. Sometimes they're not in the piston. Sometimes they are in the piston. Sometimes they're in a remote reservoir, which we'll get into. But the basics is we're pushing fluid through an orifice, and that's causing the force that we need to damp out the the spring oscillations. And that leads right into... that force and how it's generated with a spring the force is generated by its displacement if you have a 1000 pound per inch spring and you smash it one inch you have to put a thousand pounds to move it an inch if you want to move it another inch you have to put another thousand pounds with a damper it works on how fast you're moving it. If, if you move the damper very slowly, you can picture the fluid having a good chance to move through those little holes in the piston or a hole in the piston. You're moving in maybe, you know, at, uh, maybe a half an inch per second where you're just barely moving the piston slowly. The fluid can find a nice path through the through the piston holes if you suddenly move that at 20 inches per second where you as if you hit a giant bump and the piston was being smashed at a high rate of speed now you're trying to move that piston fast and the oil can't get through that hole very easily so it causes more of a resistance so damper forces are in are are dependent on the speed of the damper not the speed of the car some people get that confused they'll talk about high speed it doesn't matter how fast the car is going we're talking about how fast this shaft of the damper is moving when it's moving very slowly there's very little force when it's moving very quickly there's super high forces and that's kind of what you want if you picture hitting a big bump a sharp edged bump or let's say a curve is a good example of that hit a curb at 180 miles an hour, that the, the suspension is going to move fast. The spring is going to be compressed fast and it would return fast. Also, you'd put a lot of energy in that spring, Well, we need to control that energy with something. And that's the damper. And luckily, because we've hit it fast, there's a lot of force there. So it has the force and to control all the energy that you're putting in the spring when you hit that curb real fast. And that right there, friends, is a 
pretty good piece of information you might have to pay money for to learn in a seminar with some folks. But here you go, free from Damper Jeff. Um, yeah. So if we look at some of the different types of damper design, maybe the internals. I mean, piston is pretty much the universal norm but there are a lot of variations on that. And I realize we're not trying to go super, super, super deep. There are some who may know lots and are, are saying, come on guys, go deeper. Uh, we, you know, can certainly do that in the future, but we're trying to do more of a one-on-one type thing here, Jeff, talking about your di- dampers made by dynamic versus Penske versus Olean's Coney, uh, some of the others. What are some of the different damper styles uh, just for those few people who get to open up damper racing shocks on a daily basis and look inside like yourself? What are some of the different stylistic um, presentations of how to make dampers do something special? Uh, I would say right currently there's probably two major groups here. And within each group, every, every manufacturer has their own slight differences and, and approaches. But let's go to the probably when the first modern racing shock became usable. Um, it went through uh, iteration of uh, Fox with a guy by the name of Jeff Ryan, who kind of brought the modern racing damper technology and improved it and understood it. Um, one of the smartest guys, if not the smartest guy, in my opinion, on, on racing shocks is Jeff Ryan. And he ended up, and I don't know the exact history of how that happened, but he ended up at, at Penske shocks. And in my mind, pretty much started and built Penske shocks into what it, what it is. And, that shock was your basic by today's standards piston and fluid reservoir so inside of there there's a there's a piston with a piston band that seals it tightly along the walls of the body and in the piston are various holes and on top on either side of the piston are what look like washers they're very thin anywhere from 2 millimeter <clears throat> Well, anywhere from, let's call it, four thousandths thick shims to twenty thousandths thick shims. <clears throat> Those shims sit on top of the piston, and so fluid flows from the bottom as the shaft goes down. Fluid flows from the bottom of the piston through the hole, and then encounters this shim, and that shim is tightened flat against the top of the piston. So in order for the fluid to get on the other side of the piston, which it has to do, it bends that shim, which opens up the hole and allows the fluid to go through. Those shims, you can use different thickness shims. You can stack them in different combinations. So you can change the diameters. So the outer edge will open up quickly and then it gets stiffer. And But the basic premise is that you're still moving the fluid through the piston, through the holes, 
And it's now what Jeff Ryan and Penske came up with was controlling that flow with a shim stack on either side of the piston. That can then control how the force is generated because if you you might want a different force at a slower shaft speed than you do at a higher shaft speed. So when you're going into a corner and the shock absorber is moving slowly, you want a certain amount of resistance to allow the platform of the car to feel right for the driver. But if you hit a curb really hard, the resistance could be way too much and it could be, it could almost make the shock solid. But in this type of damper, those piston shims bend more because the fluid's trying to flow through more. So the shims bend more, making the hole bigger and allowing more fluid to flow through, almost in a way like a pressure relief valve. So the shock is the shims bend dependent on the shaft speed and give you a different force versus velocity curve, which is simply a curve that shows you how much force the shock produces based on how on the velocity or the speed of the shaft. And that right there, Jeff, is where in very basic terms, that's where you see either the dampers on the car coming off between sessions or again, every team's different in terms of their resources. For those that have plenty of money, they have multiple sets of dampers with uh, different build configurations. For those that don't, uh, you'll see them taking that same set on and off, you know, almost like they have OCD. And again, we're just speaking generalisms here. Uh, That shim stack is kind of the bread and butter of coming up with not just the fast way around the circuit, Keep in mind that the dampers in the car don't drive. It's the person behind the wheel reacting to how those dampers are performing that gives the the lap time, whatever it happens to be. It's cracking over, open those shocks and saying, okay, my driver just told me that, you know, boy, he really likes the high-speed uh, compression in these certain corners, and we know those corners are very important to lap time. But in these couple of slower corners, he's saying that, boy, it just, I turn the wheel and it's like, I'm just skating on ice, you know, any bumps that I hit the car, you know, the dampers just are way, way too solid or, you know, the, the front give me some sort of feedback as to how they are happy or unhappy about the damping characteristics by and large, although there are different piston designs you can try. And there are a lot of other little things you can do. Uh, playing with that shim stack arrangement, uh, thick washers, thin washers, large diameter, narrow diameter. I mean, that is ultimately what folks like yourself and other uh, others who specialize in this, you're kind of living in that zone of trying to come up with the perfect <laughs> stack arrangement, and there's no... There's no off-the-shelf solution. Aha! You, if you no. put these in this order on the top and the bottom, boom, you're on pulling you in the race. Nope. It nope. is driver-dependent, chassis-dependent, track-dependent. That's Tire-dependent, yeah. fuel load-dependent. Uh, yeah. it's it, it, You're exactly right. And, and that's why you'll see people take the shocks off, put new shocks on. Those are valved differently. Those are 
different, as you said, Marshall, different piston designs, different holes, different uh, preload on those shim stacks. All that produces what you're really after is a different force versus velocity curve. And now's probably the perfect time to talk about how do we measure that. You measure that in a shock dyno. By putting the shock in this machine that moves the shaft up and down at various speeds and measures the force. Very simple machine. Um, every race team has one or more or more than one. And you put the shock in there, make it go up and down at whatever speeds you're interested in. You get a force velocity curve. You can change the inside of your shock, you know, take your shock apart, change the inside components, put it back in, get another curve. And with history and experience and uh, something we may touch on, a, a, a shaker rig and the driver's feel, you can kind of get an idea of what force velocity curve you think would be best to solve the current problem that you're dealing with. And then it's the damper technician's job is to build the shock that actually has that force velocity curve. And in the days of the, of the piston shim based shocks, that took a lot of work because you would take that shock apart and back together and try and try and try. And your hands always have, smelled like hydraulic fluid or my, exactly. I mean, mine as well. I mean, and yep. one of the most fun, and I'll just share this quickly. I mean, you've done this your entire career. I was really happy when I had my first opportunity because I felt like I was a real mechanic slash not engineer, but just kind of person aspiring to be an engineer when uh, I was getting to take dampers apart and have folks say, all right, idiot. Well, first of all, uh, do this and then do that and try to put it all back together the right, right. way, not the wrong way. So, uh, yeah. but like when I was an engineer in the Atlantic series, uh, I mean, honestly, with everyone running the same motor, everyone was on the same either Ralt or Swift chassis. I mean, I'm just talking across a couple eras here, but uh, it, there really was not a lot that separated the equipment folks had. So this is where even just at the, I guess the, the training series level, you would see just absolute glowing damper dynos in whatever trailers, because this is really the one big area to try and differentiate yourself. We see that today in IndyCar where dampers are really the big thing that separates the haves from the have nots in terms of performance, but even in, you know, in sports car racing as well, it's just a huge, huge part of what we do. And yeah, uh, like I said, time has allowed teams to own more shocks, to have more things preset in place. But uh, depending on the team, depending on the resources, there are some folks whose hands are just always kind of oily because oily. they're constantly yeah. ripping the dampers apart to try something different, to help find that little advantage that they haven't been able to get. Yep, exactly. It's it, it. We reduce that slightly by probably the second generation of damper style, which is out there now, still competing against the the shim dampers. But um, probably uh, shim dampers are probably at the high end. IndyCar and sports car racing are are, are probably seeing their last last days right now. Yep. And that's, that's what I would call a valve or cartridge damper. 
And there's different variations from different companies on how they do it. Probably the most famous is the dynamic DSSV spool valve damper. Uh, Olin's has something similar in their TTRs and probably other dampers that they use. Um, but basically, to describe this is picture everything we've been talking about, but the piston is now solid. No holes, no shims, nothing. All it's all its usefulness is is to move fluid. When the shaft goes in, it moves the fluid that's below it out through some valves. And when it goes the other way, it moves it the other way through some valves. So those valves or spools, as Dynamic calls them, those are, again, orifices of some sort. We're still moving fluid through an orifice, through a hole, through a passage, through some sort of valve. And those the piston is now just pushing the fluid through these valves back and forth. Those valves are very intricate devices. Um, you know, you pull a DSSV dynamic apart and it looks like you're pretty sure that valve must have come from Switzerland in the, you know, Swiss watchmaker mm. uh, part because Absolutely. it's very, very precisely done. And some of the benefits there are is that that valve can now have holes or channels where the fluid can go through. It can also have a spring behind it to act as a pressure relief valve or a pop-off valve for if the pressure builds up too much, like on a curb strike, it can dump a lot of fluid quickly to not make the suspension feel so stiff. It also is now, and, and this is, one of the one of the big huge aspects of why the the valve or spool valve technology is so good you can now model the flow of the fluid through these valves very accurately computer model in the old shim dampers you had lots of turbulent flow through those through those holes and uh, around the shims and it was almost impossible to make a um, fluid dynamic computer representation of that flow because it was so chaotic. With the valve dampers, um, and, and I'll use the dynamic one as an example because I have the most experience with that, and the Olins, which I'm using now on, the, on our uh, core Nissan DPI, both of those companies provide a computer program where I can pull down menu, which valves I have in the shock. And the shock usually has four or five different valves. I can click which each valve I have. I can then click on what settings, number of clicks, because those valves are adjustable. You can make them stiffer or softer based on how you turn the valve. If you think of like a needle valve on a, on a go-kart carburetor where you can screw it in to make the orifice smaller or unscrew it to make the orifice bigger it's much more sophisticated than that but it's similar to that so i can adjust the clicks on the damper to make the make it stiffer or softer on these four or five valves so on my computer program i can say which settings i have i have low speed bump at 10 high speed bump at 9 low speed rebound at 8 uh, high speed rebound at 7 
put that in my computer program, hit a button, and it draws me the force velocity curve that the damper dyno would draw. But I don't have to take the damper off the car, put it in the dyno, run the dyno, produce the graph, reset my settings, produce another graph, set it again, produce another graph, and spend a day on the damper, on the dyno, characterizing this damper. I can just click on my software and get those curves <clears throat> immediately. And yes, it is good enough to match the damper dyno almost exactly. Um, because the flow is, is well modeled through these valves. So what that's done is not only is it a better way to make the damper because of a lot of reasons, one of them is much lower hysteresis, which is a bad thing generally in shocks. These dampers have less hysteresis, but the, so they actually produce the force better for grip, but it also allows the race engineer to dial in his damper much quicker rather than days and days and days <clears throat> on the shock dyno. It's two hours in the office, click, click, click. There's the curve I think I want and go to the racetrack with that setup. And so it's increased the speed, much like CFD has done for wind tunnel testing or, um, you know, any other kind of computerized testing has accelerated the rate of learning. And that's probably one of the biggest benefits of the spool valve or valve type dampers over a, over a shim damper. Also very similar to depending on the type of car an aero book, which is not some, well, we can, that might actually be something for us to add to our uh, topic discussion mm -hmm. list here one day, uh, which yeah. might come with a spec LMP two car, uh, might come with a spec open wheel car that, uh, instead of having to throw the vehicle into the wind tunnel, to know what adding a wicker here, adding a dive plane, making, you know, opening this shutter, closing that shutter will do uh, through whether it's a spreadsheet, kind of old school formula or some other methods that are used, uh, you and the timing stand can say, hmm, uh, what if I take off that and put on that? Aha, uh -huh. well, I've just increased uh, our rear downforce by 30 pounds, but we've also gained X number of drag. Center of pressure has moved this much, and this is all by you staring at your laptop using your mouse, going clickety-click-click-click, instead of, again, having to go and do some really intensive either CFD work or wind tunnel work, kind of the same modern uh, tool now being applied exactly. to uh, the world of dampers. So, uh, again, depending on what damper that uh, we're talking about in sports cars and we're not limiting ourselves to IMSA where Jeff happens to ply his trade most of the time, but any old place, depending on the type of sports car racing, again, it could be the super uh, cutting edge modern cartridge style, could be the older shim and piston package, but one way or the other, yeah, uh, if you are able to head in that uh, Olean's or dynamic direction, certainly less oily hands. So there's a, there's a value right there for sure. Exactly. And, and you brought up another point about oily hand that the, those cartridge dampers tend to have a wider range throughout the adjustments than the piston and shim dampers do. So you can hit 
a wider range of curves without having to revalve or re you know change the the actual valves inside the damper you can, there's a much broader broader range um, that's attainable which makes it you know again you have to own less dampers you have to work on them less you you know it just accelerates the the, the rate of of development maybe we should talk about um some of the i guess the next step from what we're kind of like the those are kind of the leading edge cutting edge dampers yeah. and then there's some weird weird or kind of cool stuff that's that's coming along and is is the next the next group you want to talk about that as like nerders well, yeah i was gonna say cool stuff. as <laughs> someone who ran a ferrari powered argo in uh, the Camel Light <laughs> series, uh, cool and weird is kind of uh, an on-brand thing for Jeff Brown. Right, so, right. and one of these days, and it might it's it might just be storytelling with Uncle Jeff, and it might not be super technical, but we're going to talk about Transact Racing Services for sure. Okay. Uh, a team that I that wasn't around long enough, but one that I love. But yeah, let's talk about inerters and uh, some of the other oddities to wrap here. And also, you know, as we always do, uh, send us a note on uh, social media. Uh, if you visit com, there's a little contact page. Send me an email with, hey, why don't you guys talk about this uh, aspect of, of dampers? Or, hey, you spoke about that, but I don't understand this. Or um, give us some ideas how we might tune some of the things you spoke about or other technical engineering organizational kind of uh, the true not just inside the paddock but uh, maybe on the timing stand type topics uh, don't be afraid to send those in because we use them every week uh, it's very rare where jeff and i come up with an idea of our own it's usually uh one of the great ideas you send in but yeah why don't you take us home with uh, wandering into some of the the nether regions yeah it's um uh we we really could talk about this for days and days and days. And I, I feel like, wow, is it, we really talked this long already? And I have like barely scratched the surface of what's out there now. But so hopefully this, this episode actually spurs people's interest. And like you said, we can get some, we can see where everybody wants to go with it further. But let's talk about some cool stuff you guys can look up on the internet or we can talk about it in the future in more detail, but we talked about how springs are displacement sensitive. They, they produce a force based on how much they've moved. We've talked about dampers are velocity sensitive. They produce a force based on how fast they're moving. Well, the next derivative is acceleration. Shocks accelerate. They, they don't always just run at one inch per second or two inches per second. They start at zero and they get to two inches per second in some fashion and they accelerate that way. What an inerter does is damp the acceleration, not just the velocity. And it can be a very, very powerful tool to making grip. Um, it's how does it work? So there's there there's a oh, the piston inside the damper actually spins. If you think the best way I can describe it is if you think of the old tops, I hope 
uh, I don't hope everybody's old enough to figure this. this no, I this, think we're showing I'm, our age here, but uh, go right. ahead. Being the old guy I was, I when I was a kid, I had one of these big tops about a foot around, and you had this like spiral plastic stick that went down the center of it, and you pulled that spiral stick out, and it and it spun the top around super fast. A big worm well, gear, basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, think of the shaft as the stick, and the, there's a, a spinning weight inside the damper. And as that damper moves in and out, that spinning weight accelerates and decelerates and changes direction. And through some crazy physics, uh, that damps the accelerations of the damper. And the, the, that technology is banned in a lot of, a lot of racing divisions. It's banned in IMSA sports car racing. Uh, it's allowed in IndyCar and certainly formula one. And I'm sure formula one is many steps ahead of that, but the inerters are something that it just simply makes grip. If you get it right, you have to get the weight, right. You have to get the speed, right. It's, it's a very, um, a very tricky thing. If you get it wrong, I think, um, three, four, five years ago now, I can't remember. There's a, there's a great shot of a formula one car coming straight down the straightaway and suddenly both front suspension just literally blow off the car yeah. down the straightaway that was dual inerter failure the inerters essentially blew up and blew the suspension straight off the car <laughs> so you can get it wrong too but boy when you get it right it is just pure grip so that's a you know that's the leading technology right now um, where it's allowed uh, there's some other things uh, g valves which are valves that change the damping of the car based on the lateral or longitudinal g's that the car is feeling and if you picture that real quickly you might want more resistance on the front shocks as you brake for a corner you don't want the front to dive down so you'd like the shocks to produce resistance well what a g-valve does is when it feels it senses the g's of the car and when it feels those g's build it actually mechanically closes the valve and makes the orifice smaller. So the fluid has to push harder to get through it and makes the shock stiffer. But when those G's bleed off, when you've now in the middle of the corner where you want a nice supple suspension to, to make grip, the G valve is, is removed itself and the orifice is bigger and the damper is softer. So we have G valves laterally and longitudinally, um, inerters. Um, yeah, dampers are the budget that some teams spend on dampers would, would supply some of the smaller teams for a whole season for their entire running budget. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And we can also mention here that there are a lot of folks who are, very skilled artisans, black magic practitioners when it comes to damper, build, spec, concepts. You don't know the names of a lot of those people because they are not folks that teams are wanting to readily advertise. Uh, I know, granted, in, in many cases, the race engineer also does, you know, uh, does the damper builds, etc. but... You know, with some of the bigger teams, uh, many of the bigger teams, the uh, the shock guru, 
Yeah, you might see the uh, the race engineer being interviewed on the timing stand or the strategist or, you know, there's a variety of folks. Damper folks, the really good ones, teams do their best not to put them out front because they really don't want to dangle this highly vital member of their uh, of their program in front of others going, oh, that's what he or she looks like. I'm going to go find him on pit lane next time and see what it'll take to drag him away and what right. that would cost. So and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. I mean, these are in the series that are more spec than free where damping really is a huge differentiator. Yeah. Fantastic drivers. You can find lots of those. There are a lot of members on a team who are excellent and you can kind of find similar versions. The really good damper folks. Yeah. Those are kind of hidden away uh, as much as possible. Right. Right. And they, they're worth, they're worth it. A guy, you know, guy like Brian who now has his own, he moved away from Penske shock uh, years ago and started his own company, JRI. I mean, the guy is just brilliant, brilliant. And, and you can't, you know, fortunately now you can buy his shocks. You can go to dynamic and buy those shocks. Those, those are fantastic. But the people, the people with the, um, you know, the mad scientist kind of guys, those guys, they, they're like computer coders. They lock them away in a basement with a shock dyno and, and a CNC machine, and they go to town and come up with some amazing stuff that I've been fortunate enough to use in, the, in my career. Let me ask this to close, and maybe this will bait even more interest, Jeff. Uh, obviously not referring to yourself or anyone specifically, but if we're talking about having to hire a uh, a super high quality. Ooh, boy, this person's a real stud in the world of uh, of damper and damper engineering. I mean, uh, that that's a serious not only six figure salary, but I mean, what what kind of numbers do you think a, a real true top end person might command uh, from a team that really wanted them? Ooh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. A lot of those shock, you know, they're shock technicians that are building the shocks, dynoing the shocks, maintaining the shocks, lifing them, all of that. And that's, that's like a good lead mechanic kind of job. Um, working with the engineer and all of that to produce what, um, you know, what he needs. Then there's the guys who are inventing this stuff, which yep. is completely, completely different. Those guys usually either own the company like uh, a Jeff Ryan type guy or are employed by, you know, by the, uh, like the head of Multimatic, Larry Holt. He employs some people, you know, uh, I get to see some of them at the racetrack. JF is one of the best damper technician, and that's selling him short on technician. He doesn't design them, but he knows how to tune them, build them, understands, can talk to the drivers. So, you know, like if you're on a dynamic shock, he will actually sit there with your driver and the race engineer and listen in and make suggestions and on what valving could help this problem or that problem. They'll attend seven post shaker rig tests and make suggestions because they've, they've seen it all and their, their knowledge is so smart. So a guy like JF is, uh, I don't know what he makes. It's probably not enough, but um, you know, a guy like Larry Holt keeps him around by, you must pay him enough. So I, I guess it all works out, but those guys, people like that, JF's not the only one, but he's the one I've worked with a lot. And 
those guys are invaluable to a race engineer. We could never afford as a team, as a private and independent team, to hire a guy like that full-time. Um, but the damper su- suppliers will usually have uh, track support. And, you know, um, that's a every, – every damper manufacturer has a, a track support person at each series. And their smart guys are, again, invaluable. Definitely a lucrative realm of motorsports employment to consider, but not something where you're going to become that guru overnight. Mr. Brown, thank you as always for taking some time. Congratulations, by the way, on being home. I've lost count of the number of of recordings we've done from a hotel you've been in here or there or uh, you name it. So congratulations on remembering what home looks like. I know you said when you got home yesterday, it was pretty much you were straight to uh, clearing out stuff on the ranch and doing work and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure it's nice to actually uh, see your lovely wife and uh, just be a normal person for a couple days. It is. It is. It's um, it's nice. Um, it's. I know I've been away too long. When I walk in the house and I turn a light the wrong way, and Diane's like, "That turns on the shop light, not the office light." And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> so sometimes it gets that way, but uh, it's always nice to get home for a few days and you know um, work in my office on um, getting ready for for Mid Ohio, which is coming up here pretty quickly. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing you there, my friend. And thank you, as always, for taking time and for opening uh, every episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock. I love it. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for keeping keep keep asking me, Marshall. We'll keep doing it. Uh, we're on the phone uh, with me at the moment, uh, Alex Brundle. And, Alex, it's been quite a week for you, both on track and off. It's almost like, where do we start? But let's start with um, the on-track event from last week, which was the European Le Mans series. Not the happiest race for you, but I think you came away understanding what had gone wrong. Yeah, well, we had a really nice really nice qualifying effort, which I guess was the, the positive of the weekend, popping Ligier up into to P3. And when Orica is parked over in an industrial estate just beyond the main straight, I think you know the Ligier contingent were pretty happy with that. In the race, we suffered a, a couple of little bits of damage early on. Um, I jumped in half halfway through um, with, a, with, a bit of, with a bit of damage on the car, which certainly didn't help matters too much, but uh, struggled a little bit with the rear tyre, to be honest. Um, but we've had a little bit more time now to pull it apart, and I think we understand what's gone on. Um, and certainly for the next couple of venues, uh, that scenario I think we can avoid. So, um, yeah, more happy now we've uh, taking it apart and understood it. Well, uh, through that week with testing and then the race uh, at the European Le Mans series at Paul Ricard, rumours were rife uh, that we were going to get some exciting news uh, following on for the weekend. That came. I suspect you were one of the, uh, the, the, the smiliest people of the lot because after the controversy that saw United Auto Sports restricted to a single car, you're going to Le Mans. Absolutely, and you know what? I'm just delighted that they've made that decision, um, and, and and we're and we're able to go to one. The team deserve it. They put massively uh, a, ma- a massive amount of hard work into running prototypes, and those Ligio prototypes are the only thing the team run, and and a, and, a, and a lot of them, you know, all over the place. LMP2, LMP3, 
Um, and they're out there almost every weekend panning around in, in, in Le Mans cars, uh, and they deserve to be at Le Mans. Um, and, I, and I'm delighted that the ACI have seen fit to put in the race. Um, respect to to Richard and uh, and to everybody for hanging in there because you don't just loiter on the Le Mans uh, reserve list. There, you, you have to actively you know prepare for the race for the race performance and, and there's expenditure that goes into it for a race you might not even do. So respect to all of those guys for hanging in there and uh, it's coming good and we're in the race, which is great. Yeah, I spoke briefly to Richard Dean about uh, about this. So that, uh, there was a bit of wry amusement that having planned for two, because that was the idea, and then had to reduce that to one, he's now got to resurrect his original plan and back to two. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, you've, you've got to mobilise a massive amount of people and make plans to do a 24-hour race. It's, uh, you know, you look at, you know, if you want to do a 24-hour race from a standing start, you've got to start a year before. Uh, you know, and even when you did the race last year, you've still got to make all of the plans, the hotels, mobilisation of the mechanic, catering, the, you know, you know, and your view, and your listeners will know all too well what's involved in that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, respect to, like I say, respect to the team for, for hanging in there, and and uh, they deserve they deserve to be on the grid in June. Now you've had a what probably described as a slightly frustrating Le Mans history. This will be your sixth time at the Great Race. You stood on the podium twice, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. Second, twice? Standing literally on the... Uh, uh, well, actually, thinking about it... Three times. Standing literally on the podium. Oh, yes, of we course. Were, we were dished out the podium, the podium afterwards uh, with, with DC Racing, but four times... Sorry, three times figuratively on the podium, because, of course, that podium ended up being in class in second and, and overall in third, unbelievably in that event which we, we know the history of too well but yeah slightly frustrating that I've not taken the winner's trophy home yet which I believe is your thrust uh, yeah, yeah absolutely I mean you know Le Mans uh, weekend has become something of a family outing for the Brundles and you think you're closing on your dad's total now how many how many wins uh, sorry how many wins how many uh, times at Le Mans for your dad well, he's been he's been there nine times, and this will be my sixth. Um, but to be honest, as you as you have as your Freudian slip suggests, um, <laughs> the only thing I really care about is winning one. So um, you know, wins are at one zero, um, but podiums are at two one. So we'll uh, not, that we're, not that we're counting, of course. He said counting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's that's record, and uh, I need to take over. I need to take over victory. What story it would be. Uh, if we, from a temporary garage, you know, parked, or, or indeed if we do end up in a temporary garage, there's no, there's no uh, final wording on that yet. But from a last, from a last ditch entry, uh, we do end up taking silverware home. But we've got a long way to go until we, until the, the trophies are handed out there. Well, this is a race that doesn't like people writing its headlines for it, isn't it? Fantastic stuff. Obviously, there with Ryan Cullen, your uh, your full season teammate in the LMS. We have to wait for a little while to find out. I believe who the third driver is going to be. Uh, are you, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to tell us. I could, but you won't. But do you know who your your uh, your teammate's going to be? You can ask me as much as you like because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It could be it could be very difficult. It may be that they'll invite your dad, and that'll be ten to your six. Let's wait and see how that one goes. <laughs> Keeping up, keeping up with me, exactly. Um, but, uh, of course, well, he's been out around the, the Nürburgring getting his permit um, a, a few weeks ago, so there's life in the old dog yet, but um, I don't believe he plans a, a performance at Le Mans uh, this, this time around. 
Well, you've I you've you've neatly. I don't know who we're going to be with. Uh, I have every confidence in the team to make the right choice. You've neatly segued into the other bit of news uh, in the land of Brundle in the last week or so because you're going back to the Nurburgring and the, the Nurburgring. I know you've been doing your uh, permits, uh, and we've been aware of some time that has been a plan. But the first part of that plan uh, was crystallised the early part of the week uh, with Aston Martin making it clear they're going back for a crack at the Nurburgring 24 hours, but not as a factory GT3 team, as a factory GT4 team. Uh, and with some exciting names alongside you and a pair of cars. Absolutely. And, that, and that's something I'm really excited about, actually. It's been in the works all winter. To be honest, I did my permit without uh, a real a real plan. Um, I just really, you know, I had, to be honest, with uh, the way that the Ginetta LMP1 programme worked out in terms of funding, et cetera, et cetera, which is well documented, uh, I, I had a little bit of time and just thought, right, now is the moment, because it does take a little bit of time to get a Nürburgring permit. You've got to be there. You've got to commit to the courses and the laps and everything like that. Um, so I thought, right, now's the moment. Bucket list. I need to go and do this. I need to go and open this marketplace for me as a professional driver as well. And over the winter, I beamed away really hard on the business side, making sure, trying to, trying to find a seat. Um, and this is, this has come about. I'm really, really excited. Thank you massively for the opportunity. And uh, to be in an Aston Martin works team in, uh, in any guise is an absolute honour. Um, to be going to the Nürburgring 24 hours, that uh, the magical GUT race that it is, uh, for Aston Martin is an even bigger honour. So I'm, I'm stoked. I really am. And good news, too, to see a couple of the, the well-established Aston Martin factory drivers uh, aboard, but also a brand new one with Jamie Chadwick stepping up. Sure, and I think everybody's aware of, of Jamie's quality. Uh, you know, in the in the car, um, I'm really excited to work with her. Really excited to work with Ross and Peter and, uh, and Darren and everybody, everybody in the team. Um, they're, they're people with a you know coming from a lot of different angles with a with a wealth of experience in uh, in GT racing. Whereas I, I have some experience in GT racing, I wouldn't describe it as a wealth. Um, I can, you know, I have an opportunity to do a good job A for Aston Martin, B, build uh, more and more experience at the Nürburgring, and C, build more and more experience in GT racing and come away with a result. Um, so full speed ahead into that. Uh, I'll be preparing very hard to, to deliver the best possible performance. You've driven, of course, last year in the uh, Aston, the older Aston Martin GT3 with our motorsport. GT4, though, and particularly around the, the Nürburgring, that must be something of a ride. Well, I mean, I loved the place when I when I went to do my film because I remember writing for you at Daily Sports Car uh, <laughs> uh, a quick debrief uh, summary of that, and you know, just the experience was incredible. Even in the little V5 car that I was in that weekend, uh, the place is different. It's just different, you know. Cars that, yeah, okay, a GT4 car, it's it's quick. It's you know, it's not a it's not a road car. The, the V5 car was, but it, it changes the perception of speed. The track is narrow. It's bumpy. It's tough. You know, GT3 cars look like LMP1 cars going round there. Um, and so you know, to, to be going there in in that machinery will be great. Really looking forward to it. Works team behind me. Massive opportunity to learn. Massive opportunity to deliver results. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really, really excited for that phase of the program. Great stuff. And beyond that, what else to come at the Nürburgring? Other plans you can tell us about yet, or do we have to wait? There, there's 
not another plan I can tell you about yet. I think the the more astute among you <laughs> will be able to will be able to join the dots. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a really really exciting plan, and, and hopefully plans into the future. You know, it's not uh, uh, hopefully you know all, all going well. It's not going to be a one off. Um, delighted to to be there and uh, watch this space. Alex, uh, brilliant week for you. Um, there's clearly ELMS action to come before we see you again uh, at the Le Mans 24 Hours. For now, though, thanks for being with us and good luck. Thanks, Ray. See you later. And that was Damping 101 Part 1 with our good friend Jeff Brown and closing with our friend as well, Alex Brundle, on thoughts and developments in his world. As I mentioned during the segment with Jeff, Please send us your thoughts. Please send us your questions. Jeff on Twitter. I think that's the place that he interacts the most. It's at J.V. Brown, B-R-A-U-N. And for me, it's at Marshall Pruitt, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-P-R-U-E-T-T. We also have our Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page. If you are more of a Facebook person where you can send in questions or topic suggestions. And then finally, our MarshallPruittPodcast.com site is a place where we catalog every episode that we've done so far. I think this is number 14 and every other episode on every other topic, the 500 plus that we have put together here since we uh, launched just about three years ago. Anniversary is, I don't know, a couple weeks away here coming, coming in May and hopefully I won't have this stupid cold uh, by then and a little bit of a nasally voice will be gone too. So drop us uh, anything, whatever topic suggestions, questions on what we have covered, don't be afraid to go back and check out the uh, marshallpruittpodcast.com site and listen to all of Jeff's brilliance that we have captured so far. And there's also a contact page there if you want to send me an email with something a little bit longer form or more direct. All right. With all that said, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening. <laughs>